Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. So what is your name, and uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, what brought you here and what you've studied. Uh, my name is Jennifer, and I study biology. Um, more particularly, I study post-transcriptional gene regulation um, and how microRNAs act in neurons. Cool. And um, you've been at MIT for how long? This is my fifth year in my PhD program at MIT. Are you almost finished? I would like to think so, but these things, uh, um, you never really know until the end, I think. Do you expect to be here for like another couple of years or? I'm. Yeah, probably another year or two. I, the general uh, amount of time uh, that it takes for a student to graduate in the biology department um, is about six years, I think. Yeah, so it's it's kind of the long haul. <laughs> wow. So have you um, given many talks? Uh, I guess the question here is, do you have any struggles when it comes to communicating what you're studying? Um, if so, do you have an example? And the way I'd rephrase that is, like, have you done any conference talks or like like what are some issues that have come up in the past i see um yeah i guess when i when i read that question i was thinking in terms of like you know other people just asking what, mm-hmm. like what you study and and trying to explain it to people um i i haven't given any conference talks i've you know i've given uh like posters you know, where you're talking to people in your field, and then it's much easier to communicate, I think. Um, I think for me, the the issues come when you're trying to communicate with somebody where you don't really know what their background is in that field. Um, so, you know, you, you have to kind of assess, you know, how much do they know, and, and also try to gauge what is their, you know, real uh, interest level in what I'm trying to tell them. Um, because it can, uh, it can be really hard. Um, I think probably in any, any scientific, uh, field, but, you know, in biology, we have a very specific set of words that we use, um, you know, just to describe even sort of what are the basic things to us. Um, you know, it's, it's just a lot of jargon. Um, and so to get into that, to really be able to describe the, uh, detailed sort of field that you're, that you're studying um, it takes a lot of, it can take a lot of backpedaling. And so trying to, trying to like size someone up and figure out, okay, like how much, uh, you know, how in depth should I go and how much do I have to, uh, sort of explain in order to just to even get there. Um, and additionally, how do I phrase this so that it, 
sounds interesting to somebody, right? Because I, I think that a lot of people, um, you know, who maybe aren't uh, in biology themselves, sort of their main uh, thought process goes, you know, is how is this related to diseases? Um, and in MIT, we don't have a lot of translational science. You know, a lot of it is what we call basic science. Um, and so sort of dis describing that in a way that, you know, people can see sort of what the point of it is or, or you know, how that, that can translate to some, something that they know about um, can be a challenge, I think. Um, do you have any, uh, like, when, when you're talking about that, do you have any, like, uh, times when you've either, like, noticed you've done something well when you've been explaining something, like a specific example of anything, like, I'm <laughs> like even if you're talking to your family back home or teaching a class or um, trying to explain something that you're working on to another biologist. Yeah, like how how specific of a story are you are you whatever looking com whatever for? Whatever comes to mind, whatever's relevant to you, and something that you actually think about, like that you could have done better, or you did do well, and you were shocked at how that went. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it comes, this <laughs> question of, you know, tell me about what you're studying comes up fairly often in the graduate community here. Um, so for example, I, um, I take a lot of, uh, like classes at, at Sloan, um, or I have taken some and, uh, you know, so Sloan students, you know, while they may have an interest in, in technology, um, they they don't necessarily know a lot um, uh, of background for the fields. Um, and, and so you get the question a lot of like, what do you work on? Um, and I think that in that interaction, um, you can kind of gauge how you're doing by sort of the, the I guess, unspoken uh, body language feedback that somebody's giving you. And I think that, uh, you know, it's very easy to sort of uh, pick up on a glazed over look. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of when you when you know that you're not doing something right. Um, and that, that has definitely happened. And then you kind of have to... Uh, uh, figure out how to how to recourse from that as you're, you know, real time speaking to them. Um, you know, okay, how do I re-engage this person? Um, uh, and so I think that that's sort of like a, 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 a big clue is that that body language that you're getting back as you're speaking to somebody. And that's happened as well, like when you've been talking to some of the people over there. Yeah, yeah. It, when was the first time you noticed that was happening? Was it like, as you first were interacting with people from Sloan, or did it happen? You noticed it more gradually, or I'm so I I've worked on uh, like various uh, projects, like team projects with people, um, and I think uh, yeah, I, I mean I don't want to this might sound bad, but you know I, I think people. Uh, maybe kind of lose interest, you know, like they kind of initially will ask you and then they're like, oh, that's just way over my head. Okay, done with that. <laughs> I 
I totally know. I, that. I don't know if that's a good thing no, to no, no, say no, on no, here. No, I think it's fine. Like, I think it's a common problem. I have it all the time. I used to be a teacher, and in the morning, I'd be getting coffee in the coffee room, and a teacher would be like, how's your day? And I'd go into this, like, well, this, like, I'm trying to solve this big problem. And they're like, I expected you to say, they gave me a look <laughs> of, like, I just wanted you to say good and then move on. Like, they didn't want, like, an actual conversation. And I have such a hard time reading that with, yeah. with teachers, you know? So, like, I mean, with sure. anybody, really. Yeah, I think when yeah. you really care about your subject, like, you can kind of, you, you have that impulse to geek out. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know when not to, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, I mean, especially I, I think when you're when you're in like a certain field, you know, there's the field of biology and then there's the subfield of genetics. And within that, there's the subfield of, you know, post-transcriptional gene regulation. And within that, you know, there's microRNAs and then a couple levels deeper is, you know, what what I'm actually studying. And so to get down to that, you know, level of specificity, you know, you I can say, you know, five level up, five levels up, you know, I study post-transcriptional gene regulation and somebody still won't know what that is and their eyes kind of glaze over and get that look. But, you know, for me, that's not even what I'm studying. And so it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to get down to that that real level of, of you know, what I'm actually doing and what I'm actually interested in with, with people who, uh, you know, aren't, aren't familiar. And even within the field of biology, it can be a challenge sometimes because, like I said, you know, there's sort of these subfields and, and it's definitely easier to communicate and, and easier to explain, but, but there's still um, so many different levels of expertise in, in different fields that um, you, you still have to bridge that a little bit. Why, what, what makes you excited to work on the things that you're working on? Um, I think it's really just figuring out a piece of, of how things work. Um, you know, it doesn't, I, I think originally when I got into biology, I thought it was, you know, really interesting to figure, to figure out, you know, disease and, and, and how we could design therapeutics. And that's sort of what first intrigued me. But once you get into it, you really realize, um, how much we don't know about biology. And that's really the really interesting stuff and so being able to you know figure out a piece of that even if it's a small piece and contribute to that body of knowledge I think is really fascinating. Do you ever worry about like next steps like how you're going to communicate with say sponsors or if you need to teach it all or working you know um I mean, do you have people you oversee at all right now, or is it mostly like you're being your work is being overseen by others? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's as a graduate student, it's mostly you know, and for me in particular, it's mostly being overseen by others. Um, you have your colleagues in the lab that you you know you share what you're doing with, and and you know people to give you feedback, and and so there's sort of that level of communication. Um, uh, you know, and I think that there's certainly some grad students, you know, who maybe um, help train an undergrad or ha- or have somebody below them. But for the most part, you're kind of the um, the entry level uh, uh, person, and and it's really also important, you know, as a graduate student to own your project. Um, and so that's, you know, you kind of want it to be your own work, and and 
and not necessarily have too many people, although this can be different in, in different labs and different kinds of projects and different kinds of research. And you probably have your thesis coming up, uh, or at least you're working on it on some level, or your dissertation or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, so we definitely, you know, I have a, a, a long-term project that, uh, you know, keeps chugging along, it feels like. I always say slowly but surely. Um, you know, research research takes a lot, a lot of time and a lot of uh, a commitment and a lot of motivation to keep going. Um, and that's why, you know, it's important to have a, a biological question or, you know, in whatever field, a question that really drives you to keep pursuing that. And um, so... So yeah, hopefully you know there'll there'll be a conclusion uh, to this eventually. But but it's an interesting you know we we live in the process. I think. For for I can't. I mean I think it's been interesting having this job because peeking into the minds of grad students at MIT, which is like not like talking to grad students probably anywhere else in the world. Um, it's it's one of the t- it's the top science school in the world, right? And um, you're not undergrads your grads and like you're doing you're being groomed to be researchers and and top researchers at that and like that seems like it has a lot of pressure and then I think about like how then like a regular dissertation is a lot of pressure and delivering that dissertation is a lot of pressure and I wonder if it's like a lot more pressure to do it at MIT like I I'm not a student here I did I have an undergrad in graphic design and I studied art education and school leadership, so I have no idea how to relate to that. But I'm like, is it like, is it a huge amount of pressure to like do well? Yeah, I think I think there's always a lot of pressure to do well. Um, I think one of the massive benefits of being somewhere like MIT is that you're surrounded by so many smart people, right? And so you're constantly being challenged um, and constantly learning new things. But along with that, I think comes a lot of a lot of pressure as well, right? Because you're you're always trying to be, you know, as smart as the next person, um, you know, or rise up to the challenge, um, and that that can be uh, a little off-putting sometimes to you know to always feel like you're not as smart as everyone else. And I think um, I think that happens a lot at MIT, and that everyone uh, feels that it one time or another um uh so how how could you not i mean like i watched uh captain america civil war this summer right and like the opening scene was like tony stark like giving a hundred million dollars to every grad student or a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars to every grad student all your projects have been fully funded i'm like this is like hollywood's interpretation of mit (laughs) but reasons i started working here i'm like dumbfounded by like I never picked it up, but, like, MIT is synonymous with saying somebody's smart. Like, if you have a scientist working in a lab in a Hollywood show, they went to MIT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's that, a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Like, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, you went to MIT, huh? Like, you should be able to solve all of our problems. Then. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny Yeah, that you say that. Because, yeah, whenever somebody asks, oh, where do you go to school? And you say MIT, they're like, oh, you're a smart one, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, like I mean, I don't know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I was just even thinking about how communication has got to be also something that's really 
feels like there's a lot of pressure behind it because, you know, you do your dissertation and then you have to leave. And, like, it seems like the people who are successful as graduates of MIT are people who are good at other things that don't have to... I mean, they're good at their science, obviously, but, like, they're also good at, say, public speaking or, like, uh, networking or um, finding money to fund their projects. Like, um, do you feel like you're getting a lot of that kind of education? Um, yeah, it's hard. I, I think sort of the the idea of graduate school um, education and how it can be reformed is actually like a pretty big topic right now. Um, so for the most part, you know, grad school, at, at least in my field, is set up to educate um, students to eventually go into academia, right? And that's that's really what it's set up for. And so I think that there's a lot of shifting attention. Um, to, you know, help prepare students in other ways for alternative careers in science, you know, as positions in academia um, or the number of positions in academia are decreasing, um, uh, we need a, a place for students to go. And um, so I think that there has been an increase in the interest of of giving um, opportunities for students to learn about alternative careers, um, you know, bringing in people who, who, you know, work in industry to tell students about what they do and what it's like. Um, I think that, you know, along with this, I think students themselves are starting to realize that things like networking, you know, being able to talk about what you do, you know, with other people and have that come across, you know, easily is, is more important. Um, and so I think, you know, students are starting to sort of like pursue those um, opportunities to learn more about how to do that, you know, for themselves as they realize, you know, hey, maybe academia isn't for me, you know, what else do I need to know how to do, you know, in order to, to go into this other field? Because there's not a lot um, that the actual graduate school curriculum, you know, gives you to, to know those kinds of skills. And so you kind of have to, at some point, figure it out for yourself, I think. And, and yeah, that can, that can be challenging, uh, having to navigate that on your own. Um, so let's, I think that's a perfect place to talk about the podcast. Um, uh, you know, it, like, like it said in the, the description I gave you, you know, we have professors and professionals talking at you. I mean, like the podcast is really, we wanted to have this end segment to be something special where a grad student could really be like, this was helpful. Um, or this wasn't helpful, and kind of hearing, what were your reactions to listening to the podcast? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Um, I I like thinking about um, things that are usually unconscious and, and breaking them down and thinking, oh, like how I do this actually does have an impact. And let me actually think about, try to take a step back and think about, you know, how am I communicating? What is that? Uh, you know, permitting to or giving to other people what kind of impressions and, and, you know, are there ways that I should think about this to, to change the way that I'm perceived? Um, uh, so I think that the, that, you know, sort of this, this topic is a very interesting one. Um, and, you know, I've, I've listened to, to other podcasts before that, you know, kind of 
break down other elements of language like like vocal fry and um, upspeak, and and so this whole area of language and how it how it affects how people perceive you, I I think is really interesting to actually give thought to rather than um, having it just be sort of this automatic thing that you do. Um, just so there's a refresher, I mean this will be cut out, but like uh, so we had Tony Ang, David Peterson, and Ted Gibson, and uh, Ted was the one talking about like how you're perceived by the words you choose and like what kind of access or pointedness that those that language uses. He talked about there and there and like David Peterson was talking a lot about um, language uh, from different perspective and, and Tony was talking a lot about connecting to audiences like with the language that you're choosing. Um, what stood out to you when you were like what is something that's you're, you're like oh that was interesting or anything like that that you heard um yeah i think one of the first things that they talked about um about uh language that's not just spoken language um that being uh, such as in a presentation i thought was fairly interesting um uh that you know you're you're speaking and you're giving this presentation but at the same time the audience is speaking back to you and that that's actually you know very important for how you know you uh continue to give this presentation you know even though you're the only one speaking uh it's really in a way like a two-way conversation and i i think i hadn't you know really thought about that before and how important it is to perceive your audience when you're when you're giving a presentation um and it's it's interesting to think about totally um yeah and my anecdote to that is like when i first became a teacher i thought i there was a lot of pressure on me to perform and then like that they were the students were judging me and it wasn't until my sec like I taught a lot of hours that I realized like they don't care about me and if I'm lucky they're not paying attention to me because they're paying attention to what they're learning like mm -hmm. the goal is to actually kind of get me out of that equation as quickly as possible because I'm not important to integrating the knowledge I'm giving them like I'm a facilitator of that knowledge yeah. but I'm not the person like I don't they shouldn't be like oh I wonder what Patrick is thinking right now like like that's not and it's interesting because that that egoless presenter mode uh you know it's interesting because I, I don't know how to get there I wouldn't know how to tell somebody in a public speaking mindset how to get there but that's kind of what you're going for right like to get out of the way of them judging you and be really interested in what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um, so, uh, you know, could you, you mentioned that, but there, was there any techniques, um, that you, or, or advice or anything of that nature that you've used in the past that wasn't mentioned in the show? You, you mentioned, um, Upspeak and... Vocal fry. Yeah, I yeah. just I, I think the only other thing that I've really heard on language before was a, a podcast sort of dissecting those two, like what is vocal fry and what is upspeak, um, and how what are those? those two they really kind of negatively affect how people perceive you, but when people use them, they don't even realize that they're using them. 
Um, and then there's the whole element of, you know, uh, male versus female, because I think there are both things that tend to be used by, by females. So upspeak would sort of be, uh, both of them would sort of be associated with the valley girl talk, you know, so upspeak is kind of when you you talk up and you kind of phrase every sentence like a like a question in a way when it's not and then vocal fry is when you uh you would sort of talk down and it talk like this um and and yeah yeah kind of like a like a monotone but a little bit of like a crispy (laughs) nature to your voice um and and i think Basically, a lot of women who work in radio are really um, analyzed for this and critiqued for this, um, and and so it can be something that that's that's really difficult for them and that they have to overcome. and And actually, they they train to basically remove these elements from their speech because they're you know so preyed upon for them. Um, but uh, yeah, my wife was a. a, a debate two-time debate champion um and in debate it's interesting because it's very related to politics and public speaking and um she i've never heard of this before but she told me that like they actually train the females to speak lower because um unconsciously we've associated uh deeper voices with confidence and um with uh you know a superiority and mm-hmm. it's like this totally unfair judgment because the only reason men have deeper voices is because during puberty we like <laughs> our vocal cords swell and we don't have a choice about it like, yeah. it just happens to us but like females don't go through that so like there's actually mm-hmm. coaching that you can do to like manipulate the audience's the latent sexism <laughs> the way that they're listening to things which i think is totally horrible right but it sounds very similar to the like the stuff you're talking about like yeah yeah that's and it's it's interesting to me but if you're not aware of it it right. can really hurt you right like yeah exactly it's something that you know you don't you don't even realize that you're doing um yeah yeah but i think you know for for tips and tricks um I don't I don't know that I use like any any tricks per se, but I think that one of my main things that I'm thinking about whenever I'm, you know, about to give a presentation or, you know, maybe I'm just answering a question in a class, you know, which sometimes can be nerve wracking when it's a large class. Um, I try I try my best just to not sound nervous. Um, So I really think about how I'm controlling my voice. you know, I, I, I think I, in my head, I, I try to like slow down my speech. And, and I think also, like you mentioned, deepen my voice a little bit um, because that's sort of, I guess, innately what I perceive as being confident, um, which is interesting <laughs> now that we just had that conversation. But uh, yeah, I think I think just in my head, I try to I try to get really good voice control and, you know, not speak too fast because I, in my mind, I think I have, you know, like a, a list of things probably in the back of my mind where, you know, these things make somebody sound nervous and I try not to sound nervous. 
and, and how that comes across, I'm not sure. <laughs> has somebody said people told you you sound nervous when you talk? No, I think people usually tell me that I don't sound nervous at all. Oh, so I guess it's working, but I'm very nervous inside usually. So, <laughs> so maybe it's kind of a, a, you know. I get nervous when I need to talk in class or like in front of large groups, especially when it's like raising your hand and asking a question or bringing up a point because, and, and I also babble. Like it's it's not, like I don't think, I think about what I'm trying to say, and then all yeah. of a sudden it's like, blah, 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 I over-explain. Um, it's a bad habit, but um, how do you, uh, is there any language stuff? Like, do you minimize ums when you're trying to talk or stuff like that, or do you, do you even think about that? I probably don't think about ums, and I probably say them too much. <laughs> so maybe I should think about them more. But I, I think I try to think about um, pacing and rhythm and the words that I'm going to use. And I think, you know, maybe sometimes um, that's not always the best thing because then when you, when you start to talk, uh, it's a little bit jumbled in your mind and you're, you know, you're trying to pull out these words and these phrases that you had, you know, just been thinking about before you started talking. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I, I think more about the pacing than anything. So was there anything else from the podcast that you found that, that, that was just something that you'll take away or, or even integrate into, I mean, you mentioned the other, what was the first thing about thinking about what, how the audience is having a conversation back with you somehow. Um, mm -hmm. is there anything else? Yeah. Um, so I think there were two other things that I, that I took away. Um, the first one, um, being the will and testament, will and testament, um, which I thought at first I was like, what's will and testament? Um, but then when he ex explained it, I thought it was like a kind of a nice little play on words that it's the English word followed by the French word. And, um, when you introduce a new word or it could also apply to a new concept to sort of directly after say it in another way, a simpler way that your audience can understand. Um, and, and using that just sort of the first couple of times that you um, introduce a new word, you know, whether it's a piece of jargon or, or something that, you know, maybe your audience just isn't familiar with, um, I think is a really good technique to think about um, and, and useful uh, in science, especially. Um, Another thing that I thought was interesting was uh, the the reading your audience, um, which is maybe something that, that I thought about before, how you kind of uh, try to, to size up who you're talking to and figure out, um, adjust your language for, for that person. Um, It's interesting thinking about how uh, how you'll speak differently to different people based on what their background knowledge is. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast. Brad Comics Live 
Grad Comics The Game and the Technically Speaking Comic Book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, about, find GradX, out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, for more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.